You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, his name is Joshua Brandon. He has had three deployments to Iraq. You may have seen his face and heard a little bit about his story on About Face, which is the government's PTSD veterans website that they're trying to reach out with people. And that's one of the hopes we have for this podcast is that, you know, if we can get some some soldiers, airmen, Marines, whoever it is, who may be struggling and, and, and are having a tough time to come to the forefront and start sharing their story and help with a little bit of therapy, that's certainly what we want to do here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. But let's welcome in. Joshua Brennan. Joshua, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to, glad to take the time to talk to you and hopefully recap some of our best out there. All right, well, let's start with the beginning of your story, and it's the first question we always ask everybody. Why did you join the military? Yeah, it's kind of a, a couple major influences. You know, I grew up uh, back in the 80s, and besides, you know, you had the Cold War going on, and then the U.S. Army had the best propaganda show that they never sponsored, which was the G.I. Joe cartoon. Uh, you know, and those combined, I had two grandfathers that had served in Vietnam, but all of those kind of came together that from an early age, I knew that I wanted to be a soldier. And, you know, and as I grew older and you start to read, you know, the public service uh, and, and kind of a debt to country plays in it as well, but I honestly attribute like the GI Joe uh, cartoon at the earliest stage of getting me interested in serving. So when you realized that you wanted to go, I mean, was that something that you went through high school knowing that it was going to be your path, or was it something that when you got to high school or college you, you had a better idea? How did that go? Yeah, I, I think I just always wanted to serve, and I, I had no idea what that was uh, when I when I was in high school. I was kind of a I mean, I was a bad kid. I was, you know, constantly getting in trouble, barely graduated. And, you know, as I was looking around at colleges or what I was going to do afterwards, you know, my mother kind of set the, the ground rules of, hey, you can go to the, you can go to the Citadel or VMI or you can, uh, you can enlist. And I, I checked out the different schools and, you know, Charleston had the best town. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to head to the, the Citadel. And okay. It ends up, uh, it's kind of like the West Point for bad kids, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> That's funny the way you phrase it. can go there, but, you know, once you, what you do with yourself while you're there and what you do afterwards, it's, uh, it, it's really, it's an awesome institution to, to be able to go in and, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a second chance, but yeah, was, I guess it's almost a second chance. It's funny that you characterize it that way. I mean, I, I went ROTC, so that's how I was commissioned, and I like to say, hey, I went to college. And unfortunately, people went to West Point, didn't really go to college, but it's a much different experience there, obviously. But, you know, in the Citadel and VMI, I, I knew that they were military schools, but for some reason they don't get the same kind of love and the same kind of adoration that West Point and the Naval Academy and the Air Force. It's just different. Well, I think if they had better sports teams, they, 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 <laughs> might, they might start getting attention. Although we did go, uh, we did do well in football this year, so there's always hope. But yeah, I mean, we've always kind of been the. Uh, I mean, I could speak for the Citadel. We've always kind of been like a, you know, this, this little redheaded stepchild of the academies. But you know, we kind of pride ourselves on that. There's a lot of just a history of really, you know, combat oriented and, and kind of crazy uh, officers that come out of there that have been effective and, and good leaders, and you know. I guess it is what it is, yeah. 
Was there any point when you first got to the Citadel and you're going through the whole thing and you thought to yourself, man, I made a mistake? Well, yeah, I, I think the whole freshman year, uh, <laughs> you kind of ask yourself that every day. We talk to friends and, you know, they're having a blast in college. And I'm like, I've got a shaved head, terrible clothing. and I mean, It's not fun at all. And, uh, yeah, honestly, probably the, the very first time, that, in the first minute Hell Week started, I was like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's like a it's a great or it's a terrible place to be at. It's a great place to be from. So you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't trade it for the world. What was Hell Week like? What do you remember the most about it? Uh, I remember all of us looked really ugly and sweaty because we you know we all had shaved heads and we're all like in that awkward eighteen age. And I remember a bunch of dudes that were uh, slightly older than me and had really heavy Southern accents. And I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, screaming at us the whole week so that's it's, it's basically just a blur of getting like you know a really rough week of getting yelled at and having to do all sorts of unpleasant things well and hell week for those listening who aren't familiar with it they have it at several different military places most notably seals go through hell week and and sf guys when they get to their training go through some version of hell week and it's got the name for a obvious reason and it's different at you know, where you were at the Citadel, they're, they're not trying to um, necessarily break you mentally, but they're just trying to give you, I would assume, some structure, discipline, and they kind of let you know that, hey, these are the rules, these are the people in charge, and this is what the expectations are, correct? Yeah, I mean, and they, uh, there is that breakdown process. At least that's, I remember that, you know, they, they literally, within a week or two, you know, a lot of us were, were very different people um, after that, that, that first week and then going to, you know, getting into uh, when the semester started, they, they really break you down and try to change you. And, you know, especially for guys like me, I needed that because, you know, frankly, I was kind of an ass in high school and, you know, I needed a, kind of a reboot to, to get going. Was there a point where you felt broken during Hell Week? You're like, I, I, I can't take this? Or was there a point where you're like, yeah, I've got to change? I mean, any sort of epiphany, if you will? No, I never, like, I never felt broken. You just... I would call it more like I'm just resigned to suffer for the next nine months. You, you, <laughs> you get that, you get that resignation, and you're like, "All right, I'm going to do it." Like, all right, all right. So uh, you, you get through Hell Week, you survive, you, you go through your freshman year. At some point. I would assume you realize that, hey, you know what, this is for me, and I'm on the right path. I'm on the good path. What? Where was that? Well. It, it, now, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, like a hell week I, I came out as, uh, you know, completely on the other side. It, I actually ended up uh, rebelling a little bit, and, you know, probably not the best school to go to to rebel. <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up getting suspended for a year for various amounts of bad behavior. Really? And, you know, gen- yeah, general general sculptury and stuff like that. But um, I think after I came back from that suspension, and by the way, I thought it was probably the best thing that happened to me because I got to, to you know, put four years of college without the academics in one year and then uh, went back. And I think it's when I went back that that's, that's where the switch finally, uh, you know, I flipped that. Like, all right, it's time to, I mean, time to man up and, uh, and, and you're going to be an officer in a year or two. Like, you know, let's roll with it. What did your parents say when you got suspended? Well, yeah, they weren't too pleased. Uh, you know, unlike the academies, you got to pay for uh, you got to pay for the Citadel. And, you know, I had a little bit of Army scholarship, but uh, yeah, they 
they weren't happy at all. But I think once I graduated, it was more of a sigh of relief, and you know, they come to see it. And it has, you know, it's been well worth it. Uh, yeah. So yeah. All right. So you tough it out, and you survive the four years. You get commissioned when? What time frame? I got my commission in, God, I want to say May of 2002. And, yeah, a month later I was off in, you know, in the Army basic course. And at that point, that was, you know, 9-11 had already happened and all the rumblings about Iraq, you know, it was, while it was still kind of being debated on the national scene, it was a, it was a done deal, at least with, you know, with us knew nothing when lieutenants were, you know, where we were concerned, we were going to Iraq. And, um, kind of, kind of an interesting way to go through training because it's not uh, if you go to war, this will happen. It's like, nah, guys are already fighting and dying in Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq is around the corner. Um, you know, we don't have time for anything. Like, you're getting trained, you're going to unit, you're going to war. And, and the basic course, much like you know, you have uh, basic training for enlisted folks. Officers, when they get commissioned, they go to their basic course to learn the ins and outs, not only of kind of how you're a leader, but also your specific military skill. You were an infantry officer, so you went to Fort Benning. You did your basic course there, and you got all the ins and outs of, of how to be an infantry officer. Um, when you're going through that environment and everyone is so focused on war, did, did you did you wonder if at, at that point in time that maybe I made a mistake, or were you like, hey, I'm ready for this? No, I mean, it, it, you're either all in or you're all out as far as I'm concerned, and... Um... No, it was just a matter of fact, and I think it, it, the war, the war footing part, it was always kind of just you can't really uh, you can't really describe or really um, get a good feel for it until you know training is training. Uh, but you know, once I got to my unit at Fort Campbell on the hundred first, you know, that's when it really hit me. You, you walk in and there's these seasoned soldiers and NCOs and. Like yeah, we're going to war. You know, we're we're changing our training and the calendar stops. You know, late winter, early spring. Guess what? And, th- and that's where it really hit me that you know, holy shit, I'm going to war. And at that point, you know, you're young, you got a little indoctrination in you, and you know, it's just it's, it's kind of badass. We got a badass history as Americans of going to war, and you, know, you don't never really crossed my mind that you know there's anything wrong with it or there was a, it was a mistake. It was just. But yeah, you're you know you're at this unit, you're, you're ready to go to war, and you know you're almost too busy to even think about you know whether it was right or not. You're just you're just excited and ready to go. You know, it's, I run into a lot of different types of people, and this isn't only officers, but it's enlisted. When you find out that you're going to war, or there's the notion, there are some people who react. Some some military folks are like, "Hell yeah, we're gonna go kick some ass!" And you know, this is what we're trained for. And let's go. They get excited. They literally get like excited for the near-death experience they're about to walk into. Other people seem to be more pragmatic about it. They're like, look, you know, here are the risks, here are the, 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 the pluses, the minuses, whatever it may be, and they just take a much more uh, level-headed approach. Which one of those were you? I mean, I, th- I kind of think it's somewhere in the middle, maybe. I think I was too, you know, you're like, you know, I'm following it. I was excited to follow in, you know, footsteps of not only some of my family members, but... You know, I'm going to war in the 101st Airborne Division. You know, like the the legacy of Bastogne and you know the Battle of the Bulge is everywhere. So you're kind of a excited and honored at one point. But on the flip side, as a leader, you know, you're looking around. And I've got 42 guys underneath me, all of whom have families, and you know that's 
that's that's a huge burden. It's a huge weight on your shoulders that you know, you, you take seriously, and you know you're not you're not going there to like uh, you know kick ass and beat the other team. Like it's you're going down there to you know, go toe to toe with other armed men that don't want you there and end their lives as a you know an instrument of strategic policy for your country. So it, it's you know, I think in, in some moments when you're throwing back some Guinness in the pub, you're like, hell yeah, we're going to war at the 101st. But for the most part, it's a, it's a very sobering experience when, when, you're, when you're gearing up to go. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you. I remember vividly when I got off the plane in Kuwait. It wasn't even in Iraq. When I got off the plane in Kuwait and that sun and that heat hits you for the first time, realness becomes real. <laughs> I know that's redundant, but you, I'm sure you went through the same thing, and that's the question. When did... At what point when you got there, or was it any time before that, that all of a sudden you're like, hey, it's game on? Yeah, it was, uh, it, from what I can remember, I remember a lot uh, being at Camp Pennsylvania prior to the initial invasion. Which is in Kuwait, by the way. Yeah, which is in Kuwait, yeah. And we were doing a lot of, you know, just last minute, you know, small arms training, you know, taking any, any time we could to, to really, you know, go over, you know, platoon-level battle drills and, you know, et cetera. And it really didn't kick off. And, you know, there's two things that really kicked it in for me. And it was actually like, yeah, the war is here. One, um, I, like the first unit I was in in the 101st was Battle Force, you know, which was in uh, 327 Brigade. And they had the, the incident where a soldier uh, threw a, grenade, a couple grenades in the brigade uh, command area. Yep, I remember so, it. Yeah, when that went down, we didn't at the time we didn't know it was one of our guys. You know, we, you know it could have been infiltration for us for all we knew. And then, you know, in, it's all out running patrols and, and you know kicking into high gear. And I think the second one too is when you uh, when the Scud missiles or not the Scud when we're waiting for Scud missiles to, to kind of land in the camp and you know the airstrikes are going over and you know we're throwing on mop gear, you know. Every twenty minutes during dinner, or while you're trying to read a book, like you can't. Uh, generally, just kind of a pain in the ass because you're sitting there waiting, waiting to get bombed or waiting to get gas, and of course that never happened. But that's when it really kicked in for me that, yep, this is real. It's about where we're about to go. As you were going through training, and and you get to Camp Pennsylvania, move on. Did you feel like your guys were ready? Did you feel like you had done what you were trained to do to get your platoon ready to go to war? Yeah, I I'd only had about three months with my platoon prior to going, and thankfully I, I stepped into a unit where you know the, my platoon sergeant, my squad leaders, uh, and the soldiers had been together for quite some time. And uh, yeah, I mean they they were hot, man. They, they were on it. And they knew, and, you know, I I was playing catch up to keep up with them and learning a lot from them before before going over the berm. Uh, you know that. And the, the company I was in was, you know, they, they called it the main effort company, the battalion. Um, you know, I, I was just surrounded by, you know, warriors. And, you know, I, I couldn't have been more confident going in when he was to my left and right and, uh, and, and who was under me and who was over me. All right, so you get into Iraq. Your first taste of combat, what was it? I think, uh, well, the first taste of direct contact was, Small arms fire when we were uh, we were moving into the city of Najaf. Uh, third idea had kind of by you know they were doing their blitz through the Iraqi desert. They bypassed Najaf, and the 101st was going in and taking you know kind of securing their urban uh, securing the urban areas. 
And it wasn't much of a, a, a first firefight, you know. It was just some, a couple of Iraqi machine guns, uh, most likely just kind of trying to disrupt us and, and slow us down so that they can kind of withdraw fighting forces. But, yeah, I mean, that, that first rooster tail comes running right by you, and you're like, oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm getting shot at. This isn't like the movies. All right, I'm too busy to care. Let's keep going. And for those who don't know, just I always like to give people reference points. Najaf is probably about two and a half, maybe three hours, maybe even longer than that, directly south of Baghdad on the Euphrates River. Uh, again, for the people who are familiar with the lay of the land, it's it's definitely desert, but uh, you weren't too far from the Euphrates and, and south of Baghdad, but definitely way north of Basra where the water was and everything. But, uh, I mean, that's uh, that's an area of Iraq. I never got a chance to go there, but um, there's not a lot of... Um, I mean, there, there are towns and, and cities and things of that nature, but uh, pretty isolated, no? Yeah, it's it, it's pretty flat. You know, you've got your, your agricultural lands, but at, at that point in the war, you know, it wasn't like 06 or 09 where you're fighting an insurgency. We were still, you know, the most irregular forces we were fighting were you know, the, the Fedayeen, who were basically just stripping off their uniforms and, and trying to disrupt as much as they could. Um and yeah, in the urban area, we'd already had a little bit of practice in, in urban fighting, so it wasn't wasn't much of a a huge deal for us to go into town. You know, granted, we weren't as developed as we were later on, but um, I, I would have to say, on a, on a side note, one of the most striking things about fighting over there wasn't necessarily the, the terrain, but you know, you pull into the Euphrates River, and we're like, okay, we fought to the, Israel, the Euphrates River, you know. Holy crap! This is the Euphrates River. This is the Tigris, and, you know, and Euphrates. It's a cradle of civilization. You know, Alexander's come through here, and the Persians, the Romans, you know, and the Muhammad, the Brits, and it, it's almost a sense of history hits you that you're just another one in a long line of, of fighters that have ruled through this area for centuries. So there, there's a kind of a really neat, really neat, you know, overhanging theme of, of why you're going through and. You know, invading or liberating or whatever you want to call them, uh, our, our first year in Iraq. What was the tempo like? I mean, again, you're talking about 2003. Uh, so you were there for OIF-1. Uh, this is the initial invasion and the follow-up push. I didn't get there till the tail end of OIF-2 into OIF-3, uh, and I know what it was like then, but most of the people I've talked to at that time, it wasn't as crazy as it was later on in the war. It was actually pretty easy to deal with once you got past the initial invasion. There was a kind of a calm, correct? Yeah, we had ended up, you know, there's there some sporadic fighting through uh, through Najaf and then up into Baghdad. But essentially, we were just chasing tanks at that point. You know, it was classic blitzkrieg. Um, once we'd gotten up to uh, Mosul, uh, you know, there was a couple months there where you know you heard you, you kind of heard some stuff about you know, some rumblings of the insurgency, but of course, you know we're, we're hearing from the locals and the higher ups telling you no, there's no insurgency, and it, it was pretty quiet for a couple months. And then right around, uh, I would say about August, September, uh, that's when the insurgency in earnest, at least from my perspective, started up in Mosul. That's when we started getting more sniper fire. Uh, IEDs, you know, started coming out of uh, coming out of nowhere, and you know, random RPG attacks when you're when you're on patrol, and and, and, and granted, it still wasn't as hot or as sophisticated as it was, you know, it was when I was in Baghdad in '06, but it was just kind of the birth of that insurgency. 
All right, so just just for clarification, because I'm not sure. I, so you, you initially inserted into Najaf following, as you said, third ID, but you moved all the way north to Mosul. Is that correct? Yeah. We were, yeah we, we, How long did that take? Kind of chased the, we, we chased the tanks from uh, Najaf and then up to Baghdad. And, you know, once they started, basically once uh, the Iraqi army just evaporated, you know, they kind of they cordoned off the country and you know cut it up into sections. And the 101st is northern Iraq, and you know we, we were attached. You know we were third of the 327th, and we got attached to uh, the, you know 502nd, another brigade in the 101st, uh, up in Mosul to kind of start occupation, and then uh, inadvertently stumbling into uh, counterinsurgency operations. So, so how long did that take you guys? I mean, Mosul to Najaf is it's about eight hours, so you're talking about a distance from, like, New York City to South Carolina. Uh, I mean, how long did it take you to get from point A to point B as, as a unit? Uh, we mostly flew, thankfully. Oh, okay, so you weren't, like, humping all the way through on, on vehicles and, and convoying up there. No, that was one of the side benefits of the 101st is, you know, we like to joke that we're the truck, we're the world's premier truck assault division, but... Uh, the, the helicopters were there when we needed it, and yeah, we managed to hitch a ride up there, thankfully. Oh, okay. All right. So, because that, that to me would have been an incredible experience. I mean, obviously, you know, provided everybody made it alive, but uh, to be able to do that and go on that net first push, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of people who were on that initial push, but that, that seems incredible. Did you end up losing any guys on that first deployment? Uh, within the platoon, no. Uh, okay. Within the company, yes. Uh, right when the the insurgency kicked in, you know, we we had a couple wounded, but um, one of the the first major attacks against our company was uh, a, a, it was against another platoon and uh, some elements at headquarters. And you know whether they were, I think people were establishing patterns or we were just predictable, and you know we weren't quite being nimble enough to uh, fight the insurgency. You know, Long story short, we, you know, they were changing on a uh, control p- or a command post, uh, an observation post, and they got attacked with an RPG as they were loading up on, on uh, some vehicles. A good, good buddy of mine and our supply sergeant were uh, were killed and maimed in that uh, in that attack. And that was kind of a wake up call too for hey, you guys know these tactics. Um, it, it's real. The insurgency insurgency is real, no matter what you're hearing on CNN or what you're hearing from D.C. So the war's not over. Stop stop thinking about going home. You know, get after it. Did that kind of send shockwaves throughout your platoon or to you that, hey, I mean, we've talked so much about it being real, but it's weird how you get to new degrees of real every time something happens the first time. I I think, you know, when you lose somebody, it definitely sends shockwaves. But, you know, I, I have to say I was proud of my guys that they never let it stop me we we always took everything as if you know there was you know life and death and, and life and death consequences, which is they, which is what they were. We took every mission as if you know we were you know assault in the Ziegfeld line or something like that. And uh, I think it just kind of confirmed what what we had been doing all along, as opposed to having us change up what we were doing. Okay, so you finished the first deployment. and You get home when? I got home in. I don't even remember now. It's the winter of uh, 03, 04. Okay. And w- w- when you got back, did you take some leave? or you, just, did, were, you were a single guy at this point in time, I assume. Um, you didn't really meet anybody on the deployment, obviously. <laughs> no, I was actually uh, – my. she wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, 
she, I guess you can say my uh, my living girlfriend, Kristen, uh, you know, who'd go on to be my wife. Uh, we'd been living together. Uh, well, if you can call it living together, I was off in army training and and uh, and then off in Iraq when she was, you know, living in Cleveland. And uh, but yeah, I came home, got got to see her, and of course, all of them, you know. I remember them saying, like, oh, God, you're changed. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, but, yeah, I take some leave and then really kind of got back into the swing of, like, what's next? When are we going back? Because we'd heard that, you know, you get buddies all over the Army, and that's when, you know, some of my Marine buddies and then uh, some of my other Army buddies were gearing up for, uh, you know, Fallujah. And, you know, like, well, hey, this isn't this isn't over. It's, it's, it's actually going to be a long road. And so really just got back in the mindset of, like, let's drink a bunch of Guinness and start training again and, and get ready to go back. You, you mentioned that friends and family members, loved ones, said that you were changed. Did they say how? Uh, I don't, I don't, honestly don't remember. I know, I, I think it's such an uncomfortable thing, and, you know, and uh, PTSD, especially at that point, there was such a stigma around it that you know, people basically looked at it as, like, you know, crazy Vietnam vet, you know, homeless guy or Rambo or Patton slapping a soldier at that point that, you know, people just didn't talk about it. I think they, they wanted to highlight the, the positive changes in me as opposed to the negative. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, it was readily apparent. You know, we, we spent most of our time, uh, you know, we, we were drinking hard. We were drinking several nights a week. Uh, you know, I, I got into mixed martial arts at the time to kind of channel some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, drinking a lot of Guinness and mixed martial arts is not a good cure for PTSD. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but, but I also think we were just, people didn't know enough about it, and mm-hmm. people were just kind of too polite or didn't know how to breach the subject or broach the subject that, you know, like, of course my, you know, Kristen would, would, would say things to me, but, um, Really, you know, it was just like, oh, that's that's just what it is. That they're soldiers, they're crazy. They're going to go back to war. Well, and, and the 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 hard part is, is that it, it's hard to talk about anything that went on over there and any of your experiences with people who aren't in the military because they'll never understand. They can't understand. It's not that they are not empathetic or anything like that. Just if you're not there, you'd have to sit there and literally talk for hours to describe something very simple just to give people a basic picture. So it's hard to talk to people who weren't there. On the flip side, if you talk to about it if people were there, you're afraid that they will look at you as weak. And that is the stigma early on with PTSD that was very, very tough because I'm sure while a lot of you guys are saying, hey, let's go back again, if you would have said, man, I don't really know. I, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm feeling okay. They would look at you cross-eyed as if you weren't a good leader. Yeah, and that's one of the, and I don't think, um, I, I honestly don't have a negative, uh, you know, kind of view or memory of that, because, you know, looking back on it now, it, it was ignorance, it was, and it was institutional ignorance. Right. For years, we had called, you know, post-traumatic stress, and you know, there was cowardice, and, you know, but, you know, in, in later years, you know, talking to uh, family members who remember, you know, like my grandfather's or, you know. Uh, other members of the family that were in World War II in Vietnam, uh, you know, they, they saw that stuff, they saw the effects, and, and that same stuff went on, but it was just kind of shoved under the rug or put into a closet, and everybody put on this forward face of, you know, everything's okay. You know, meanwhile, you know, 
everything's not okay. That individual and that family, you know, they're suffering on the inside. And, and you know, it, I, I kind of like to compare it to, uh, you know, functional alcoholics. You can have severe PTSD, and especially in the military, be incredibly functioning and, and, and hide it from people, you know, for, for quite some time. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an excellent point. And uh, as we always say on, on the podcast, just we encourage it. Just talk to somebody, anybody. Just let people know that you're struggling because there is help available. And with the, the suicide rate in the military, 22 a day, I mean, people should have heard enough about it by now. But seriously, one is too many and 22 is egregiously too many. So uh, just a quick little public service announcement. Let's get back to you uh, on your second deployment. You were awarded a Silver Star. Congratulations. Obviously, well-deserved. Tell me about that experience and exactly what happened that day. Well, I call that the uh, the wrong time, wrong place medal. Um, <laughs> yeah, the uh, that, that was you know, that was an interesting day. I, it was kind of a summary for uh, that middle tour and kind of the whole civil war period in, in, in Iraq. Um, it was in August, and where I was in, where we were at. So kind of laying the, the, in the background of the story. I was with a small advisory team that was made up of uh, soldiers from you know, 506 Curry, the, you know, the whole Band of Brothers uh, regiment. Right. And we were, there was about 30 or so of us uh, that lived in a house, and we had some cool guys with beers that lived next door, and we lived on a, an Iraqi army compound, and we were directly attached to uh, an Iraqi army battalion, first in the 26th Infantry. And, you know, we kind of, we lived with them, we fought with them, uh, we did, we kind of had a, a huge uh, a variety of roles, you know. We, we were there initially to do kind of like company and battalion staff-level function and kind of, you know, westernize their, their military. But, at, you know, as time went on, you know, we were in Adamia, which is in northeast Baghdad. It's the Sunni stronghold. Uh, which borders on Sadr City, and it, you know, it was the direct heart of some of the ethnic, you know, cleansing and, and the civil war in, in that part of the city. And so we were, you know, from the very beginning of the deployment, we were hooking and jabbing, and that's that's when the uh, Samara Mosque bombing happened. If you remember that? Yes. Kaden bombed a, a Shia shrine, and literally, it was like a switch, and all the crazies came out, and the civil war started, uh, and. That night, I remember looking over and we were watching on, you know, our, 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 our Ikea, sorry, TV. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think I think it's going to be a different deployment now. And let me so pause. Fighting, let me pause you right there, Josh. I'm sorry. I just kind of wanted to give some people some background for those who are listening who are not military and don't understand a couple of things. I, I, I sometimes have to do this just because I don't want you to get too deep in the story and people not being able to follow. Um, the, 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 what you were doing there, uh, it's technically it's called a MIT team, M-I-T-T. The Army uses a lot of acronyms and abbreviations. But your job initially there is, as a MIT team, you're like embedded advisors, and you're supposed to help them, train them, grow them along the way. It's a, it's a hand-holding and then eventually a release to be able to let them do it on their own. In some places, in some areas in Iraq, it worked, and it worked well. In other places, it took long, long amounts of time. It didn't really take a, a lot of the reasons that it did or didn't depended on the Iraqi soldiers themselves. And when you reference Sadr City, we've talked with a couple of people about that again. Th- that is the equivalent of the most dangerous city in America. I mean, whether you want to pick Detroit, now I don't mean to cast aspersions on any of these cities, Detroit, Baltimore, whatever it may be, Sadr City was the most, literally the most dangerous area in Baghdad, and it was so hard to get a hold of. 
we lost so many people around there. But as you said, the civil infighting there was also at an all-time high. So it was, it was, a, it was a powder keg area that you were operating in. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I wanted to just get that part in. Sure. And I, what I would add to that, too, was uh, when we got there, that northeast section of Baghdad, which was you know, probably the most critical portion of the city and what ended up being the most violent, uh, was handed over to an Iraqi division at that point. And so the only American forces there were, some, were, were us in, in this advisory team and then some special operation forces that would op- uh, operate in the area. And, you know, kind of looking back on it, I think that was one of the, the a, a, a huge flaw in, in the overall strategy. Because we, we literally, you know, took the most dangerous and, and hardcore area and handed it over to a, a battalion of Iraqi troops, which, who I love and, uh, you know, fought tooth and nail with, but they were unprepared. And, you know, the powder keg kind of blew up from under us. And, you know, I think we, we, we helped like that. Um, one other thing about Cider City, it is a small, confined area. I mean, you're talking literally less than maybe what? Help me here, like maybe two or three square miles. It, it's not large at all. I mean, you, you could literally walk from one end of Cider City to the other in under thirty minutes if you wanted to. Yeah, and that and, and Cider City. Just to, to be clear, Cider City was you know, just east of us. Our, our actual AO was uh, Anamia, um, Shabur, and. Uh, Basically, the Sunni and Shia mixed area uh, west of Sadr City. Gotcha. And so we were kind of smack dab in the middle, uh, kind of on the front lines of uh, Sunni, Sunni Shia ethnic cleansing. But essentially, you're right on the Tigris River. Yes. Okay. All right. So pick it up. You're, you're, you're in August of 2006 again. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, leading up to that point, we've been fighting, or fighting left and right. Um, and kind of the way it, it, it was supposed to work is they, they, the Iraqi army was, was fully trained and ready to go, and we were just going to advise them on staff functions. Well, as soon as bullets started flying, we not only trained them on staff functions, but we also kind of shadowed their commanders in the field. And then, you know, when the shit hit the fan and the Iraqi unit was about to break, that's when we would step in and, you know, you, you, and, you know, either you'd be the first through the door, and you'd be leading assault um, assaults with Iraqi soldiers through the street. And so it was kind of a, a really uh, an amazing experience because you worked on so many, you did so many jobs on so many levels. You know, from from hanging out with the Iraqi Jews in, in, in a in a fossil, so to speak, you know, throwing rounds, uh, to going back and working with the battalion commander, and then you know, not sleeping and going and making sure their their, their staffs were working. Um, so with that kind of said, in August, it was, uh, I think it was the 20th, 21st, 22nd, somewhere in there. And to kind of set the stage, uh, the striker units had, had just done their big sweep of Baghdad. And, and strikers are awesome unit. I ended up serving with them in my third deployment. Uh, but they'd essentially come in with all the, the cool toys and, 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 and intelligence and, and clean an area. Uh, for us, it was it was an awesome vacation. So the two weeks prior, we just were able to kind of catch our breath, and we knew it was whack-a-ball. The, everybody knew the strikers were coming. They announced it, and all the insurgents left. And as soon as they, as soon as the, the strikers moved on to the next clearance area, everybody came back and you know decided that they were gonna they were gonna tell us how happy about how happy they were with us clearing their city. Kind uh, of uh, at the same time, there was a major Shia holiday and. This is one where thousands of Shias would, would march through the street, kind of, you know, some doing the self-flagellation where they would, you know, um, 
beat themselves in, in honor and punishment of, uh, of abandoning Ali at the Battle of Karbala you know, mm-hmm. centuries prior. It's essentially a very uh, sensitive religious holiday. And so that morning we get a call that uh, our Iraqi soldiers are engaged. And the soldier that called me is a Kurd member stock. And I, I love that company. They were a hardcore group of little fighters. Uh, saved my life many times. Went places with me that a lot of Americans wouldn't go. Uh, and completely fearless. And he gives me a call, and I can hear fear in his voice. And that just put the, the, the hair on my neck stood on end. And essentially what had happened is the Sunni nationalists had started firing into the, the Shia marchers uh, on a highway that they were marching down between Sadr City and, and the Sunni neighborhood. Uh, just kind of indiscriminately shooting them, trying to provoke a reaction from the security forces. Well, the security forces uh, responded uh, kind of heavy-handedly. So you have Shia army uh, with tanks, uh, Shia police forces crossed over uh, not only to defend the protesters, but to uh, kind of punish the Sunni neighborhoods. Not only did they attack the insurgents, they started randomly pulling Sunnis out of their houses and executing them on the street. So our little Iraqi unit, and mind you, when I say uh, Shia security forces, they are also operating side-by-side side with uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi, the Mahdi militia, which is the, uh, the Shia militia group under Muqtada al-Sadr based out of Sadr City. And so our, our little Iraqi army group is kind of caught in the middle. And so when we showed up on the scene, uh, as the fighting was in full flesh, you had you know, Sunni nationalists, you had al-Qaeda, you had Iraqi security forces from, that were both Sunni and Shia, army police, as well as uh, Shia militia, all and Americans, for that matter, all kind of fighting together. I mean, the best best example, I guess, is uh, the Battle of Five Armies from, from The Hobbit. Not the movie, the book. But, <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I remember pulling up, and I'm like, you know, like, who the hell are we supposed to fight today? Everybody's here, everybody's pissed, and everybody's shooting at each other. And, and, and you know, that's how the day started. I th- um, you know, I can't. I don't really want to go like play by play, but essentially what we did was, you know, we, we picked the greatest threat first, uh, and also closest to us, which was you know the Al Qaeda and the Sunni nationalists. And uh, with the Iraqi army, we kind of uh, went house to house and, and cleared down some streets, and, and you know either disrupted or killed their uh, you know their little groups of machine gunners that were. We're attacking us and the Shia. And then once we quelled them, we had this big tide of, uh, you know, Iraqi security forces and, uh, uh, you know, big wave of Mahdi militia coming over the bridge to uh, basically commit, you know, genocide on, on this uh, Sunni neighborhood. And so you have our small team, and, you know, and mind you, our Iraqi army, which started with, you know, probably 100 soldiers on the ground, either through casualties or fear and kind of, you know, boiled away to about 30 or 40. Uh, it's just us, a couple of machine guns, and some trucks, and this horde of Monty militia coming over. And I remember thinking, like, if we shoot, we're dead. And something just kind of clicked in my mind, and myself and a couple, one or two other guys that were standing with me, uh, basically charged into the Monty militia guys and just started, you know, swinging at them and, and throwing their weapons to the ground and trying to be as crazy as possible. And, you know, I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, wow, this is how I'm going to die. Um, punching dudes and taking their weapons and, you know, for what? 
and while it worked, they uh, literally the Shia Todd kind of, you know, I don't think they knew what to expect. They didn't expect a handful of Americans just to start, you know, tr- trying to start a fist fight with them. <laughs> and uh, they ran back across the bridge. And, you know, we continued to rip body militia members off the tanks and, and kick them back over the bridge. And just a, just a really bizarre day. You know, we kind of got some, some fisticuffs in. We got some, uh, some fire maneuvering, and we fought. Fought for and fought with every every side in in the Civil War that day. That's interesting. Uh, do you recall about how many houses you ended up clearing? Um, you know, off the off the top of my head, you know, between five and ten, we were so small, we had to be very selective. You know, we're, at this point, we're only clearing with like two or three Americans, and you know, five to twenty Iraqis, however many with us at the time. Uh, I do remember a funny story that day, though. Uh, speaking of the house clearing, I we just chased a, a little machine gun team into uh, into a house, and we were going in to clear. Right before that, uh, being super thirsty, and we're talking it's like 130 degrees out, and we're fighting during the day. Uh, you know, who fights in the day out there? Just no thanks. Um, and I chugged. We had a bunch, you know, the classic, uh, we were kind of out of water, and there was some hot water bottles that were all dusty and dirty at the bottom of the home beat. And I took one of those and, and chugged it and then ran into the house. And I ended up having to, to uh, take a knee out in the stack because I threw up all over the room just chugging this warm water. <laughs> and so I come stumbling out the front door like, God damn it, you know, I'm throwing up. Well, my medic sees me like, uh, kind of go down to my knee and keep throwing up. He thinks I'm shot. He jumps out of the home. He runs over there and, like, try, you know, puts his hands all over me trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And finally, I'm like, you know, dude, I just drank hot water. That's it. God damn it. I thought you were shot. And he just, like, <laughs> kicks me in the ass and runs back into the home. It's funny how you can find those little moments of levity in comedy in the most tense situations sometimes in combat. It just, it's almost needed because it just takes the edge off a little bit. Oh yeah. Hey, I mean, you got to focus on that stuff. It's, uh, it, 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 I've always been fascinated about you know the human how humans react and that that whole fight in the shade thing. You got to laugh in combat because you know if you don't, what else are you gonna do? When you remember recalling that this is where I'm gonna die and this is how I'm gonna die, was there a different sense of fear? Did, you, did your body react weirdly? No, I think at that point. Uh, I already had I've had one of those moments probably about once a week for the past that four or five months, uh, just because we were so exposed and, and the fighting we were doing was so just you know, outside of what uh, you know what we'd been exposed to or what a lot of other people are doing. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say you know you're always you're always scared you're always terrified, but it, it, it's amazing how the body, how adrenaline and how the mind and, and muscle memory can take that fear and kind of put a package around it. And, you know, you, you're like, okay, I'm going to die. And in and, and, and another moment or maybe in, at another time, you know, you could, you, you might defecate yourself or, or, or freak out. But because you're in such a, you know, you're trained for it and, you know, you kind of got some muscle memory from it, uh, it it's almost like an out-of-body, not an out-of-body experience, but you're looking at the fear not as being washed over you, but you're kind of looking at it from the outside in like, oh, yeah. You're terrified, but you don't have time to be terrified. So think about it later. I mean, we talk so much about facing your own mortality on the podcast because all of us who have been in that situation 
have dealt with it. And it's funny when it happens repeatedly, it's different for different people. Uh, I mean, I could just remember there were several times where I was going out on mission and I always felt like today's the day. I just had an over, there were some days I felt invincible. There are other days where I just felt like today's the day. We just rolled the dice too many times. We got to crap out. Just something bad is going to happen today. And those days were almost worse than anything else because when you have that notion going into it uh, that something bad is going to happen, it's such an inescapable feeling. You feel helpless. Yeah, and I think uh, the majority of times I had that feeling was uh, was driving around on like you know heavily IED IED roads. Uh, kind of, we had the benefit of living with the Iraqis in the air in the sector that we were defending, and so we didn't have to drive much. We could you know we could kind of walk, and the, the IED threat against our vehicles was minimal. Uh, now the, the small arms and RPG fire was at a maximum, uh, but you know, I can kind of. I always had the comfort that I mean, we're better than them, uh, and we're we can kill them. I can, I can take this situation and bend it somewhat to my will to make things happen. Whereas when it came to IEDs, I mean, that's when I was just you know scared out of my mind. I remember you know sitting in the back seat, and I'm like, wow, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm just gonna hold my breath, or uh, you know, sit here and just. I didn't even know what I did. And you just have this sense of doom and, you know, you make it through the road and you're like, sweet, I didn't get blown up. You know, it's time to go do my stuff. But yeah, that, that over, anytime I had to drive anywhere far in or out of the area that, that we were at is when I had that sense of doom of, this is it, I'm done. Um, and, and I think that was more of a, a control thing. I couldn't control it. I couldn't even impact it outside of deciding when and where to drive, which, you know, is still kind of a crapshoot, so... Yeah, certainly uh, different experiences for different people. You talk a lot about PTSD and something that you've had to deal with. Was there any one particular event that you think led to it more than another? You know, I, I was—I definitely had it after my first deployment. Um, you know, kind of looking back and understanding, didn't know it then. I, I would honestly say it was after that fighting on, in, in August that. Uh, Everything kind of came to a head. Um, prior to that, you know, we've been in a, an innumerable, innumerable amount of uh, you know, small and large firefights. Um, you know, like I said, you're, you're leading the, you're leading from the front with Iraqis in in these brutal little street fights constantly. And at first, you kind of think like again, it's like that combat muscle memory. Like you know, my brain's changing, but it's in a good way, so I can learn to kill people well. And I can keep doing it. And what you don't know is that, yes, that is what's happening in your brain. Uh, it, you know, it, you're also going to be suffering these side effects. And I think it was after that August fight that I really realized that, you know, I, something was wrong with me, something was different. Um, and I, and I, I think one of the things that helped me realize it, too, was you know, we were sitting there after uh, after a particularly nasty little fight one day, and uh, one of the cool guys that lived next door came over, and you know, we were just smoking a cigarette, and you know, I was sitting there shaking, but you know, who doesn't shake after you know six hours of, of throwing down? And uh, guy's like, "Hey, make sure you get checked when you get back." I'm like, "Oh, what are you talking about?" And he's like, "No, he's like, you got it, man. You know, don't don't let it ruin your life. You know, there's no." 
there's no stigma around it. There's, I, I think something that he said and something I continue to use is, you know, you go into a firefight and, you know, you come back and you clean your weapon, your mind's the same way. You know, your mind is actually a more lethal weapon, and if you don't clean it, you don't take care of it, um, you know, you wouldn't go into combat with a dirty weapon. Why would you go into combat with a fouled up mind? And it, it was at that point that not only I realized, like, I kind of gave myself permission that, like, yeah, I am, you know, screwed up. Um, but then also, I'm like, this guy, who's, you know, supposedly the, the tip of the spear for our entire company, our country, you know, like, Justice League of America type of guy, is cool with saying it and admitting about it and admitting to it and, and, and going to get help. And who the hell am I not to, you know, a lowly infantry grunt, who the hell am I to, to say it's, it's bad or to look down on it and not get help? So it, it was kind of a good and bad moment at, at the same time, one of realization and then one of, like, that stigma getting pulled away. What was more fearful for you, the combat itself or dealing with the PTSD after? Uh. I, I think it's different kinds of fear. Um, if you're talking about straight-up lizard brain animal terror, uh, definitely combat. If you're talking about the more rational fear, the kind that you know doesn't isn't with you when the when the uh, when the adrenaline's pumped up, when it's kind of that that uh, that fear that's resulting from your neural pathways being you know being rerouted to to kill and survive better. It's that. Uh, that that le- leftover residual fear from your, your lizard brain screaming, and it's also combines that social fear of uh, you know I'm different, I'm, I, you know I'm, I've done I continue to do and I've done self destructive things to myself and my family, um, you know uh, it's affecting my career, you know it's like that different kind of overall fear. Uh, so for me, there there are definitely kind of two different two very different things. When you look back on what you went through from the PTSD standpoint, uh, what was the hardest part to deal with and overcome? Was it the flashbacks? Was it, you know, the drinking? I mean, how? what was the hardest thing you had to overcome with that? The hardest thing to overcome is, for me was to fully admit and then kind of to submit to the idea that I had it and that I needed help and that I couldn't deal with it on my own. Uh, and that if I continued to try to and fail to deal with it on my own, uh, I was going to continue to hurt myself and those around me. The, you know, and, and, and at the time, you know, I think, it's, you know, if you have your symptoms flare up in, in daily life or wherever, yeah, that's hard. But in looking back on it, the hardest thing for me was dealing with, uh, you know, really coming to grips that I've done some terrible things and I've hurt people around me. And, you know, you're, and I'm not saying it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous thing where you're like, submit to a higher power. It was just like, dude, just come up with the fact that, yeah, you know, you've done some kick-ass things in war, but you can't handle this on your own. You need help, and you're not weak for uh, for trying to fix yourself. And, that, and to that, to me, and that's still a struggle to this day because you, you get a little better or you get a little farther on in your treatment. And even a little sense of empowerment. But for me, it's the hardest thing to keep remembering that, you know, I can't do this on my own. I do need help, and I can't just beat it or blow it up or, you know, fire maneuver on it, and it's done. It's a lifelong struggle that I have to keep coming after. When you go through a deployment, it's, you mentioned the horrible things that you have to do. Uh, and people get awards for doing horrible things sometimes. And, and I don't mean to denigrate 
the awards that we give out. But war in and of itself, the phrase is overused and it's cliched, but it's true. War is hell. And we all have to make decisions that are in the best interest of ourselves, our troops, the mission, all those things. And there are less people around on the earth because of the decisions we make. How hard is that for you to cope with? That, uh, yeah, I mean, coping it means something else to me now. I think before it would be like, you know, you've got to justify it. You've got to have the right answer. You've got to, uh, there's a reason for this. And, and the more you, you know, at first I'd bury it in like, I'm, a, I'm an instrument of strategic national policy. Whatever I did is for the country. And you're like, well, that's bullshit because, you know, from the from the White House to all the way on down to you know the platoon level, there's all sorts of you know it's it's not it's not black and white, it's shades of gray. And so having to live with you know uh, the death I've caused, whether it be friendly or enemy, uh, or the death I've been around, and, and civilian too. I think that's one of the hardest things to get over. It's seeing civilian deaths. Um, it's. And coping for me became, hey, you don't have to justify it. You know, you're not, uh, there is no justification. It is what it is. Um, you know, talk about, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe. It's literally coming up within your mind of like, hey, this happened. Uh, you can be okay with it. You can live with it. You don't have to, you don't have to justify it as right or wrong. You don't have to let it punish you for the rest of your life. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that was kind of one of the, the, the hardest things to, to get around is that I couldn't justify some of the stuff that we had to do um, in, in patriotism or, you know, we were just, you know, for God's sakes, never say we were just following orders. But um, you know, just really realizing and saying, hey, this was this was war. Uh, this should happen. You did the best that you could with the information you had at the time. Don't let 2020 hindsight uh, trip you up. Don't let, you know, uh, like I said, patriotism or nationalism or anything like that. Don't bury those hard deeds in that because that'll just burn you up when it, when it comes out. You know, there's no such thing as like I said, black and white, red, white, and blue patriotism. It's all shades of gray. So it's just learning to live with it and admit that you're in, you're in a storm and you did the best you could to to, to get through it and and, and you know to, to do well while you're doing it. And it's it's very lucid that you bring that up because we tell a lot of stories on the podcast, and I hope that we provide some context because it's easy to take these things out of context, and that's the dangerous part for people who have never put on a uniform and never served their country and never been to war before. They don't get that context, and that's part of the the struggle with PTSD is that it, we see things in a different light. We frame them differently because of the situation that we were in, and I don't know if people can grasp that. Uh, I do recall you saying in one of your videos on About Face, which is the National Center for PTSD website, that you know talking to somebody who wasn't in the military, though, was really good for you because that perspective helped you more. Oh, definitely. The, uh, I think everybody's like, they don't, you know, I need to talk to somebody that's been there and they understand. And I, I quickly find out that I didn't want that. I had my... You know, not all therapy happens in the therapist's office. You know, like I, I've done it on the mountain, but a lot of times, some of the best therapy I've had is, you know, having a Guinness and, and, and talking to a buddy that has been there. But for the professional help, I, it, it was really uh, helpful for me to have somebody that wasn't trying to uh, 
help me rationalize or wasn't kind of building the building or feeding the narrative that I already had. It was somebody that was completely separate that was like, I don't give a shit if you were in combat. I don't care if you were lethal. Like, I care about what your brain's doing now and what your thought process is and what your body is doing. And to have somebody that, you know, literally can care, care you know, I mean, you know, the honor and respect of your service, but, like, when it comes to the treatment, they're like, yeah, I don't know what that is, and I don't care, but I know what's going on in your brain chemically and psychologically, and we're going to fix it. And I think that was that was super helpful for me. You, you did three deployments, and you got out. Why? What was the decision? Yeah, I, think, I mean, three three deployments in 10 years, uh, you know, I was tired. Um, I, I had a, you know, a, a wife at the time that I'd barely seen over, you know, because even when you're home, you're training so hard, you're not, you're, you're not really there. And then with the PTSD, I could be in the same room with her for years, and, and it wasn't there. And so I, I kind of realized that, you know, I needed to, to fix my own house. Uh, number two was a little more selfish. You know, I, I'd always, when I joined, I was like, I want to be a company commander in combat. And after that, we'll see. And after three deployments, and I was, and, and you know, done my company command time in combat, I was sitting around and uh, doing an operations job at a desk, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I, I'm, I'm in the army to go to war. I, I love working and tra- fighting and training with troops. And I'm not doing that anymore. So I think it's time for, you know, my heart's not in it. It's time for me to step aside. Any regrets? Oh, every day. You know, like every day, you know, you think about what if, but, uh, you know, all I got to do is pick up the phone and call somebody that's still in. And, you know, you forget about all the bad things that go on, uh, all the pain in the ass stuff, but the reasons why you got out. Um you know, all you got to do is you know pick up the phone, call somebody, some of your buddies or family that are still in, and like, hey, what'd you do this week? And well, here's all the bullshit we had to do uh, do this week. Can you believe that? I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not <laughs> in any. Yeah, there... I mean, I, I I miss the war. I miss I miss the fighting, and I miss you know I, I miss that, but I don't miss the daily life in the army. Are are there any regrets for you personally about your entire experience? Uh, I, overall, no. You know, there's there's decisions and there's uh, you know there's there's events that happen that I look back on. Uh, but you know, overall, I, I I really try not to dwell on those regrets too much because you know, number one, memory is so it's it's so it's such a funny thing that you know what actually happens and how you remember it can be you know two different things I mean, you know that's a whole podcast in itself talking about that but right um and and then and then looking at it in, in hindsight of course with 2020 i can be my worst critic and really having to learn that hey this is what happened and you know yeah i regret the deaths that i caused and the deaths that happened around me but you know you got to be careful about dwelling too long on regrets. It's more of, you know, what went right, what went wrong, how can you change it in the future? And, you know, that kind of goes back to the whole tactical mindset anyways. But, yeah, so I try not to dwell on regrets. I, I remember them for what they were and, and try to learn from them and, and move forward. As far as you dealing with PTSD and someone who went through it, what's your message to people listening to this podcast who may be struggling, what's your message to people who know somebody who they think may be struggling? I think uh, the biggest thing, and, I, and you know, I, I, we told this to my soldiers when I was a commander, 
you know, like I said, if, if you're, you're going to combat, your weapon's dirty, you clean it. Same thing with your mind. you got to get it fixed. Um, PTSD, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. You know, it's a warrior sickness. It's, you, know, you can even boil it. And that's kind of, you know, Homeric and its origins, but uh, you can boil it down even further. You know, it's, it's a rewiring of neural pathways kind of bypass higher functions so that, you know, you can fight or flight. Like, I'm going to go get food there. Oh, there's a lion, and Bob got killed. That scares the crap out of me, and my brain just rewired, so now I'm not going to go there because I know a lion's there. It's a very primal uh, thing, and that means it's natural. It's normal. It's okay. And it's, it, 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 it happens in war, and uh, whether society or the people around you uh, – have that attitude or not, it doesn't matter. That's exactly what it is. Everybody from, you know, if you don't think Patton, who slapped his soldier, didn't have sleepless nights and, and you know, a, a terrible home life resulting from uh, from his PTSD from World War One. you know, you're fooling yourself. Go get the help because it's, it's a matter of fact. You break a bone, you go get it fixed. You know, you, you get sick, you take your medicine. Um and I would say with that, uh, don't be intimidated by uh, by modern medicine. Like the, the therapeutic and, and therapeutic and, and pharmacological stuff, it, it works. Don't rely solely on it. You know, I rely on on, on friends. And for me, in particular, I turned to mountain climbing and mountaineering, and you know, really uh, got lost in nature, and then kind of came back and combined mountaineering. Uh, a close group of friends, as well as the, the therapeutic side of it, to, to get through it. So, you know, bottom line, it's natural. It, it happens to warriors. It happened in the Got Leonidas and Spartans. If, if you're into the whole 300 thing, they had it, and they talked freely about it, and they, you know, they, they regarded it as a matter of fact. So, why shouldn't you? You know, go get the help. You're normal. Well, Josh, I want to thank you so much for your time. I, I want to thank you for your honesty and being willing to share uh, your story with us. Obviously, you did some amazing things, uh, you know, for the 101st, for yourself, for the military, all that involved. But uh, most importantly, I think your PTSD story and, and helping people going forward is something that I hope a lot of people will take from this podcast. And I hope that they will go get the help that they need and look for others. But thank you again for your time. You've been an amazing guest. Best wishes and, and uh, catch up with us again real soon, man. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for putting this message out. It's important that everybody hears it all the time. And so thank you for what you do. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.